Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the 27th edition of Data Bytes, Getting Things Done with Data in Government, hosted by the Institute for Government. I'm Gavin Freegard, Associate at the IFG, and it's wonderful to welcome you all this evening to... Actually, hang on a second. Yes, it's wonderful to welcome you all this evening to Datavise at the IFG for the first time since February 2020. So to those of you here in the building and those of you joining us online, hands up if you've been to Datavise before. Welcome back. And hands up if this is your first Datavise. Welcome. You've chosen a brilliant one to start with, one with four fantastic presentations on themes I think will be prominent around government data this year. One with a real sense of jeopardy that something could go badly technically wrong. One where after two years of me happily making jokes into my webcam, assuming you were all laughing along with me, I'm faced with an actual audience and the crushing reality that you weren't. <laughs> it's good to see that works. And one where after two years of wearing this suit jacket, I finally get to wear the trousers as well. I was wearing jeans, don't worry. Yes, tonight we're trying out a hybrid Datavites with audiences physical and virtual, speakers here in the building and joining us from elsewhere, and our wonderful new timer. You don't get that on Countdown. Whether we're here at two Carlton Gardens for future events or not, we'll always be live streaming and always able to invite virtual speakers. But our return to the building is a good opportunity to thank all of you for helping Datavites not only survive, but thrive in its online format. Thank you for watching us throughout the pandemic. I hope you'll keep watching as we stagger, politically punch drunk, into the next major global crisis. Let's start with the usual housekeeping. Tonight's event is on the record and we are being live streamed, obviously. If you'd like to get involved on social media, it's hashtag IFGDatabytes and we are live tweeting from at IFG events. If you're here in the building, the network is IFG Internet Hotspot, password institute123 or lowercase. If you're not in the building, I presume you're already online somehow. As ever, I'll be putting your questions to our speakers. If you're online, submit them via the Slido page. You're almost certainly already watching this on. Go to bit.ly slash slidodb27 if you're not. And if you're here at the IFG, you can raise your hand. Unless, of course, you have such a difficult question that you want to submit it anonymously online. Feel free to tell us who you are and where you're from if you can. Remember, we are on the record. Why does IFG host Databytes? Well, we want to bring together the various different communities in and around government data. We want to show everyone, including those who don't think of themselves as data people, what better data can achieve in practice. And we want to put interesting data projects on the record for everyone to learn from. How does it work? You're going to see four presentations about different data projects this evening. Each presentation will last for eight minutes. Yes, just eight minutes. There are eight bits in a byte, hence eight minutes in a data byte. The presenter or presenters We'll then face questions for eight minutes. Yes, just eight minutes. And then we'll move on to the next presentation. So four presentations of eight minutes, each followed by questions for eight minutes. As you've already heard, this is our 27th Databytes. You can watch the previous 26, including last month's, on the IFG website. So we always start Databytes with a light-hearted, heavily charted look at what's happened in politics over the last month which might prove difficult today, but let's try to keep it light for a little while longer. Let's start with domestic politics and what's happened in the month since our last data bites. Well, 
Four of the Prime Minister's most senior aides resigned. So too did the First Minister of Northern Ireland. Conservative Anna Firth held Southend West for the Conservatives in the seventh by-election of this Parliament. The Chancellor and his Chief Secretary took different views on whether the Prime Minister should have raised Jimmy Savile in an exchange with Keir Starmer. One of the leading Conservatives in local government, West Midlands Mayor Andy Street, criticised the Prime Minister over Partygate. The Bank of England raised interest rates for the second time in three months and its Governor Andrew Bailey was criticised for saying workers should not ask for pay rises. The cost of living crisis and particularly energy bills came to the fore. And Sir David Norgrove, the Chair of the UK Statistics Authority, who will be speaking at the IFG next week, rebuked the Home Secretary and the Prime Minister for their misleading use of crime statistics. Sorry, did I say that all happened in the month after the last data bites? All of that actually happened the day after the last data bites. Now, devotees of data bites will also know that at this time of year, being Welsh, I tend to throw in a few charts about Rugby Union's Six Nations tournament. For example, this chart from last year shows the score per minute as Wales beat England. On their way, as this chart shows, to a magnificent tournament victory. As for this year, unfortunately, I've not been able to obtain any data about Wales' performance, though I had a number of tries, more than the Welsh rugby team did. A happy St David's Day for yesterday to you all. But of course, one story has understandably dominated the news in recent days, and that is the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Sorry, I've got the scale of this bar chart wrong. I suppose in these troubling times, it's reassuring that the government tradition of announcing something, being criticised for it, and delaying the inevitable U-turn before being forced into it by public opinion continues. There's nothing funny about the war on Ukraine, a war where the subjects we discuss here at Databytes, the use and abuse of data and information, collide with military and human reality. So I'm not even going to try. It's difficult to know even what data to use to illustrate the scale of the crisis. The wealth of sanctions and their effect on the Russian economy, the rarity of UN emergency sessions, the one on Ukraine will be just the 11th, or tragically, the numbers of casualties that will likely occupy news coverage in the days and weeks to come. I know we will all be thinking of Ukraine this evening, but I hope tonight we can also give you some other, less terrifying things to think about. We have a fantastic lineup for you, both here in the building and virtually, including a number of sneak previews of forthcoming government publications. Our first speaker this evening, our first speaker in the room since February 2020, will be Tina Mamiri, Head of User and Data Insight at the Government Digital Service on Data, Trends and Change on gov.uk. Then we'll hear virtually from Hannah Spiro, Head of Public Attitudes, and Holly Clark, Public Attitudes Researcher, both from the Centre for Data Ethics and Innovation. They'll be talking about the findings of the CDI Tracker Survey, which monitors changing public attitudes towards data and AI. We'll stay virtual with Charles Price, Deputy Director of the Knowledge Assets Team at Bayes, on Public Sector Knowledge Asset Management. And then we'll be back here in the room for Kathleen Caper. Senior Policy Advisor at the Central Digital and Data Office, will be talking about the Data Standards Authority and why data sharing governance is key to its plans. Our next Data Bites will take place on the 6th of April and then the first Wednesday of each month before we take a break for August. Tonight is a rare Data Bites, not only because we're here in person, but also because we're not sponsored. We need sponsors to keep the series going. If you would like to do your bit for the general happiness and increased effectiveness of the government data community by supporting a Data Bites, please get in touch with my colleague Pritesh. And if you'd like to speak at a future Data Bites, please get in touch with me. For those of you watching online, I'm afraid there will be no virtual drinks tonight. They may return at some point. 
but I'd like to say a big thank you to everyone who joined us over the last two years, and especially to the stalwarts. They know who they are. But that's enough introduction from me. Let's hear from our first speaker this evening, Tina. Thank you very much, Gavin. Wow, it will be difficult for me to follow that up. Um, but I do have to say hello and thank you to Databytes for inviting me to speak today. It is a massive treat being here in real life. Um, so I'm very excited to be sharing what we do at gov.uk and GDS. My name is Tina Marmidi, and I am the head of data and user insight at gov.uk at the Government Digital Service, or GDS as it's more commonly known as. So today I'm going to talk about how we use data to understand gov.uk users and their needs, and how we've addressed some of them using the examples around COVID-19 content in the recent couple of years. So for those of you who don't know some context about GDS to begin with, it sits at the heart of government and cabinet office, and we launched our new strategy in May last year with a clear purpose, and that is to build a simple and joined up experience of government for everyone. And that is using our unique position at the center of government, we will develop services that just work for the user, however complex the underlying systems are. Um, and data has a very key role to play in realizing this. So a bit more context on gov.uk specifically, if you don't know, it is the online home of the UK government. We get about 17 million people visiting weekly for routine, complex, and sometimes life-changing reasons or events. And gov.uk contains over half a million pages of information and provides access to over 300 transactional services. It serves a dual purpose. Um, the one is we help people to understand government by helping users self-serve and not needing people to know how government works and the complex kind of intricacies of government in order to do a task. We also help government understand people by generating insights and data analysis to see what is working and what isn't and to try and improve that. So as you can imagine, during Brexit and COVID and coronavirus lockdowns and everything in between, we've seen a huge increase in visits as people took to, to the website to find out what they need to know in these complex policy areas. And the numbers show how vital it is to keep gov.uk as that trusted voice for the government uh, in the UK. To give a sense of scale, gov.uk was the 12th most visited site in the UK in December, above Netflix and the Daily Mail, according to SimilarWeb, which is an external site that's actually tracking and benchmarking um, online usage of, of digital websites. So the popularity of the site, which has been consistent throughout the year, illustrates that engagement with government services is higher than some of the biggest digital media and entertainment brands in the country. And according to YouGov's regular poll on awareness and perception of digital services in the UK, gov.uk had near universal awareness at 98%, and 67% had a positive perception of it. Again, both of those scores have been broadly consistent across all quarters in the last 12 months. Based on our own nationally representative sample of research, close to four in five of the UK population looked for government-related content in the past year. And this translates to approximately 18 billion tracked visits on the gov.uk domain. So caveat about that, we think that it's underrepresented because of cookie consent and opt-in rates, um, but it's probably balanced out if you count uh, the multiple device usage that we can't currently deduplicate for. Um, our analysis shows that despite some commonalities, the majority of user journeys are unique. So even journeys that have been specifically designed to be linear, 
such as smart answers, deviate significantly from our expectations, with completion rates ranging between 25% and 75%. So again, that just goes to show how unique and how different all the multiple users that come to the site are and what their needs are and how they vary uh, depending on what they're trying to do on the site. Our cluster analysis shows that our users span the digital and demographic divide. So the biggest cluster um, of users who engaged with government content in the past year, which is about 60%, primarily interacted with coronavirus content, as you'd probably expect. Um, they are more likely to be based in England, 45 to 55 years old, and highly educated. What we saw then with the second, third, and fourth clusters um, was that we represented users with more specific needs, such as driving and transport, which skewed slightly younger, um, working jobs and pensions, which were more frequent gov.uk users, and uh, thinking about or looking into environment and countryside type of content, uh, where again, some of those users were, had lower education skills. Those who didn't look for any government-related content in 2021 uh, were more likely to be 75 plus years old. So here we're also trying to understand a little bit about the demographics and the needs and what drives um, people to, to visit the site, uh, depending again on the seasonality and various other things that we will be trying to understand. So let's zoom in a little bit to give you a bit of a snapshot of what was happening in gov.uk in January of this year. It was pretty busy. Um, it has been for the last couple of years, but it's been so busy in January that it beat March 2020, which was previously the record uh, for traffic levels at the start of coronavirus. And this January peak is driven by a combination of the usual seasonal increase, so back to work and back to school, um, the self-assessment deadline, and other COVID factors in the first week of the month with record cases, shortages and test kit supplies, and changes to travel requirements. Again, the majority of visits came through mobile devices, which is a trend that we've seen um, increase throughout the last couple of years. And digging, into, digging deeper into some of the COVID trends on site, we see how the top COVID terms have changed, including increases in passenger locator form, lateral flow tests and working from home, and on the flip side, decreases in PCR, Omicron, and Plan B. So what's happening, again, out there in real life is very much being reflected on how people are engaging with our content on site and what they're looking for, as you'd expect. Zooming out again, we see that more than 40% of all content on gov.uk last year was COVID-related, so the reactive peaks and troughs will drive overall trends. And this slide shows the daily page views of COVID trends between March 2020 and March 2021. Um, and we can see here when there was a policy change or new information on COVID spikes, which showed the increase of traffic as a result. This would allow us to analyze, interpret, and help predict trends to improve user experience. So I will now talk you through some examples of that in action. One example that we worked on was international travel rules. We saw in our research that people misunderstood the information on gov.uk or just couldn't find the right pages on the website. So in response to that, we were working with the FCDO and DFT to make the information more clear and concise and organized in a way that makes more sense to users. So rather than just reflecting the way that government departments are organized, um, which again, users don't necessarily know or understand. So on the left is a page that people really struggled with in the research and we have entry requirements for Germany here. On the right is what the updated page structure looked like, this time for Denmark. And that performed much better in our next round of research. 
Um, we also combine this qualitative research with the quantitative data we get from people actually using the website. So that shows us what people are looking at, what they're clicking on, what they're searching for, and how they move between pages on the website. For example, we had a service that let you found out, find out what tier you were in based on your postcode. We made changes based on qualitative research and data about what people were doing in the service. We changed some of the words and the color of a button to try and get more people to see it and click it. Um, and we looked at the data from gov.uk to make sure that it had the positive impact that we expected and that it wasn't creating new problems for users. So as a result, click-through rate actually increased by, tw by 10%. This particular tool was retired due to national lockdown, but we typically continue to monitor performance and analyze user feedback and iterate our content and our products accordingly. Another source we regularly use is the feedback tool at the bottom of every page. Amongst other findings, we were able to see that people were using the unofficial tier rather than local alert levels terms, so we made the change to that term on gov.uk to make it easier for people searching for the guidance. People were also looking for clarity, specifically around overnight stays in private residences and hotels, as well as further detail around wedding attendances. And we also needed to reduce confusion between the rules at the time versus planned and future guidance as new changes were coming in. Okay, so with a combination of quant and qual sources and trying to understand macro trends as well as performance at a product level, we are continuously trying to improve user pain points and make the experience on gov.uk simpler and smoother. That's it. Thank you very much, Tina. Thank you. It's good to be back, isn't it? Um, so if you'd like to put your questions to Tina, if you're online, you can do so using uh, the Slido page that you're probably already watching this on, and many of you already are, or you can go to bit.ly slash slidodb27. If you're here in the room, uh, please wait for the mic to come to you. Um, do tell us who, you're, who you are, if you can. We are on the record. Um, and the time will start once the first question is asked. So please keep them as questions, not as comments. Now, since we've not had one for two years, I wonder if anybody in the room would like to ask Tina the first question. Yes, thank you. Has the gov.uk website ever crashed? Um, that or been is, crashed? That is a good question. I believe it's very resilient. It can take a lot of traffic. I am not aware, so I have been in GDS for a year. It definitely hasn't crashed in that time. Um, I am not aware of a time that it has crashed, but um, there are kind of mechanisms as well. If it stops working the, the way that we expect, there are kind of mirror images and static pages that we can put up um, from like the previous day, for example, that people could still access in case of an emergency. I don't know that it's been needed any time recently. Um, but it's definitely able to take a lot of traffic and we've been able to handle it in those really busy peak times. Thank you. Thank you. Um, we'll take one more from the room and then go online. I just wondered how you cope with the fact that different parts of the UK had different rules at different times to make sure people were clicking on the right rules for if they lived in Scotland or Wales or Northern Ireland as that, opposed to England. Yeah, that's a really good point. And as you saw again, the main pages that we looked at on the cluster analysis were with users coming from England. Um, so those were the ones that we were able to kind of track 
better because of the analytics that we had as well and most of the content on the gov.uk main domain being England specific. Um, so we, we do need to work with the kind of other services and the other domains where some of that other content was to make sure that people were clear on what they were accessing but we could see in the search terms that there was confusion and we had to redirect to the right place. Um, so that was just something that we had to monitor and, and try to address and iterate um, relatively reactively, but as quickly as possible. And it was just, again, at the time, everyone was swarming on it, really looking at the data, trying to see what the user behavior and the journeys looked like, and that we can, again, make sure that the content was diverting them to the right places, which was changing constantly. Excellent, thanks. And um, we'll go online now to a question from Anonymous. Good evening to you, Anonymous. Uh, how do you identify gov.uk pages that aren't working well? So there's a number of metrics and sources that we use to track. Um, one is the feedback uh, tool that I mentioned. So that is a really good way for us to um, benchmark against the average, which again, the average in itself doesn't mean that much because we've got so many different content pages and types and categories but we would be able to spot um, content that's seriously underperforming, um, both in terms of some scores that we collect, but also the feedback that we are given. Um, similarly, with some of the behavioral data that we're looking at, how people are moving through the journeys versus what we expect them to be doing. And again, when we see deviations um, that are not expected, um, we would probably do some more user testing, go deeper into that. I mean, there's a lot of user testing before we launch anything to begin with. Um, so that would identify quite a lot of the problems at the beginning and from the outset. But then once we roll it out to production, we keep monitoring to see how it's performing in real life. Great, thanks. We've got uh, another question from Anonymous. I don't know if it's the same Anonymous or a different Anonymous. <laughs> um, to what extent do you monitor access to gov.uk from devices outside the UK? Um, Again, so Google Analytics is the primary tool that we use for, for something like that. And you can see it gives you a sense or a proxy of location based on IP address. Um, and we do see when people are coming, what proportion of the visitors who or the users who have opted into tracking, um, what proportion of them are coming outside the UK. So it's not, I mean, it's the minority. Um, as you'd expect, and they do tend to look for more specific type of content. It would be travel related or visa related. Um, and so, yeah, that's the kind of analysis that we'd look at. But most of the user testing itself is done with uh, UK users and citizens. Great. I'll come back to the room in a second. But first, a question from Felipe Sanchez. How do you plan to maintain or increase high user engagement for COVID-related topics to new ones or other strategic ones for government? I might ask you to repeat that in a bit. I think I'll, I'll answer one part of it, definitely. Um, our aim is not necessarily to increase engagement. Like, it's, it's not a metric that we're like a vanity metric, for example. We're not uh, measuring our success by the number of people that come to the site or engaging with the content. We're measuring success by how many of the people who come to the site are finding answers to what they're looking for. So that is more important to us. If they're coming to the site and they're looking for things, then we need to make sure that they're finding them. So that's more important to us than to continuously kind of bring people to the site. That said, we are working with um, search partners and with other departments and with um, 
news uh, websites as well to make sure that they are directing uh, content and users to our site when it's relevant and when they should be. So we are a very trusted website. We do come quite high up the search results. Um, so we, we continue to do that. Excellent. Does that answer? I, I, th okay. I think it probably did. Thank you. Um, let's come back to the room. If you wait for the mic, it's just coming. Uh, Simon Briscoe. Uh, it's about data tonight, so I'll ask you a question about Thank data. You. Um, before gov.uk, it was a bit of a mess trying to find government data because you had to go to the government department website and look for the data tab or whatever, mm -hmm. which was not great. But also, I think if you search on gov.uk, it's also not great to find data. You can get tens of thousands of hits and struggle to find the piece of data that you're pretty sure exists. Um, so I just wondered if there was any way you could make that journey a bit easier. I realize people looking for data will be a minuscule bunch of your users, but I do think it's an important way of holding uh, government to account. And of course, the ONS largely bypasses GDS, so anyway. I mean, that is a really good question, and it is something that we've been thinking about. We sit on quite a lot of data, our own data that we control and that we manage as well, and we'd quite like some of that to be more publicly available, perhaps. Um, we're still trying to invest more in the maturity of that, of our data sets to begin with, before we're able to maybe start thinking about making them more publicly available, and in terms of other data sets on um, data.gov.uk, that is, again, something that we're trying with other partners um, within GDS as well and outside of GDS to improve. It's, it's something that we're quite aware of and we do think it, it is a duty that we should try and support. But it's, it's, an, area, it's an investment area for sure. Uh, Mary Susan Barry, the Department of Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy. Um, and it's a follow-up to this question um, around data. First of all, do you have any plans to do any user research and actually give some, um, take some views on looking across ONS, the um, data quality hub, and also are what sort of drivers have CDDO, which is the Central Digital and Data Office, have to actually somehow or other get all relevant data sets for government either working properly on your CCAN platform, data.gov.uk, find open data, or on another platform? Yeah, I, I would say that discussions are being had with some of the organizations that you mentioned. Um, as I said, it is an area that we know we're underserving and that needs improvement. So uh, it's, it's not just a GDS initiative, and but we are working closely with CDDO um, and ONS as well. We've got some relatively regular catch-ups to understand what the plans are around IDS um, and how we can tap into those and how we can support some of that thinking. But it is a big, long-term kind of project um, and a pretty complex space, but the, the conversations are, are happening. I'm, I'm afraid we're going to have to finish there as we're out of time. Sorry. Um, but, Tina, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. And sorry to those of you online who had some brilliant questions that we weren't able to get to. Um, hopefully we'll get to you for the rest of the speakers tonight. Um, so we now move on to our second uh, presentation 
for, of, of the evening, and we're going over to Hannah and Holly, who are joining us virtually. Good evening to you. Thanks so much, Gavin, for having us. Um, sad to not actually be with you in person. A quick note um, for those who don't know, CDEI, or the Centre for Data Ethics and Innovation, leads the UK government's work to facilitate responsible and trustworthy innovation using both data and AI. And within CDEI, Holly and I lead on our public engagement research. So that means using different methods to actually um, engage with the public and explore their attitudes to data. And this is incredibly important for CDEI to actually be able to advise on governance that actually addresses these public concerns that we're identifying and ultimately reflects public values. But today, we are giving you a sneak preview before it's published of our new Public Attitudes to Data and AI Tracker Survey. And this is a repeated survey sent to a nationally representative sample of 4,000 individuals online, and then an additional 200 um, digitally disengaged respondents via telephone. And that's to track the public attitudes towards data and its use in society, as well as actually assessing and quantifying what is driving those attitudes. A quick note on why we've launched this survey. Um, firstly, lots of organizations actually talk about the need to build trust in data use. But as far as we are aware, this is actually the first tracker survey in the space to actually help monitor change over time. Secondly, um, we may be biased, but we really believe in the value and necessity of hearing from the public about their concerns and also hopes for data use and using this to inform CDEI's work, but hopefully the work of others also. Similarly, um, by having a large online and telephone sample, it means we can examine differences across the population at a statistically significant level, which we think is incredibly important. And finally, in line with our team's commitment to transparency, the survey and actually the raw data will be published. So we hope this is a useful resource for other teams um, as a starting point for further analysis. And ultimately, we want to hear from you of how these findings are being used and what is or isn't working within the survey. On that point, we spent a lot of time um, engaging with stakeholders across Whitehall, academia and civil society to actually inform the development of the survey and make sure we are asking um, genuinely useful questions that fill a gap in research. But we would also encourage anyone else listening today to get in touch as we're really keen to continue this engagement as we revise for future iterations of this survey. A few caveats before I hand over to Holly to talk through the findings in a bit more detail. Um, the first is that, as we'll see, the public don't have one singular attitude towards data. So this survey is a very useful starting point, but it's not a prediction of how the public will feel about every data use case. Linked to this, polling is great, uh, but it has its limitations. And so we would encourage this research to be used alongside other qualitative and experimental methods and research as well. Next, trust is a nebulous concept that means different things to different people. Uh, so we actually measure it in different ways in a survey, including both self-reported trust, but also looking at behaviors. Finally, uh, this survey reflects how people felt when they were answering these questions in December 2021, but this is gonna change over time, and that's the reason for repeating the survey to look for underlying trends. The final caveat is that we only have eight minutes, so on that note, I'm gonna hand over to Holly, a quantitative specialist, for a whistle-stop tour of the findings. Thanks, Hannah. So I'm gonna be talking just to a few of the key findings from the tracker survey. And the first one of these is that as data-driven technologies have become more commonplace across society, there is a recognition of the potential benefits data use brings. Although this is the case, people are not always clear about 
how their data is being collected, used and governed, leading to feelings of uncertainty. And finally, in order to address this and build confidence in data use, our research indicates that people are more willing to share their data when they have high trust of the organisations holding their data and there are strong governance mechanisms in place. So on the first of these findings, and perhaps unsurprisingly, we find that the use of data-driven technologies across society is really high. However, this isn't always a given, and it's really important to acknowledge that. So through our telephone sample, we can see that there is a proportion of society that has limited digital confidence, and therefore there's a danger of leaving these people behind, creating a digital divide. So alongside this, we found that there is an openness to data use across a variety of different public and private sector contexts with high levels of comfort across different use cases. And this reflects other CDI public attitudes research where we've generally seen an openness to data use, especially when it's to tackle big societal issues. Yet we also find that there are feelings of uncertainty amongst the public about how their data is being used, collected and governed with one in two people reporting little or no knowledge of this in their day-to-day -day lives. So moving on from this, the question is posed of how do we build public confidence in data use? We know from past research, the public support for data sharing is influenced by several key factors. And this includes the what, so the type of data being used, the why, so the purpose and impact of data use, the how, so the governance mechanisms underpinning data use, and the who, so the actor or institution using data. So in the tracker survey, we used a conjoint experiment to test and quantify the impact of these different factors on willingness to share data. So for this experiment, we presented participants with several different scenarios of data sharing where we randomly varied the actor involved, the type of data, the purpose of data sharing, and the level of governance. And we asked respondents in which scenario they'd be more willing to share their data. So on your screen, you can see an example of two profiles that a respondent would be asked to pick between. So this experiment setup helps us pick apart the causal relationships between different aspects of data sharing and public attitudes, where self-reported opinions might not reflect real life behaviours, especially for something complex like data sharing. So if we look at the results of the conjoint experiment, we see that there are clear preferences in, who, in terms of who the data is shared with, the type of data, the purpose and the levels of governance applied. So on the graph on your screen, each of these dots represents the influence of an item on respondents' choices within the experiment. So items with dots above the grey line were chosen more frequently than average. So these are people's preferred responses. And those below the grey line are chosen less frequently than average. So these are people's less preferred options. And I'm going to talk through just two of these. The first one I want to draw your attention to is the impact of actor. So this factor was the one with the largest difference between any two items in the conjoint experiment. Profiles in which data was shared with the NHS were chosen 69% of the time compared to profiles which data were shared with social media companies, which were chosen just 36% of the time in the experiment. Other actors had less of an influence on preference, but in general, we tended to see that the public preferred to share their data with public sector organisations over big tech and private companies. We also see a really strong relationship between levels of trust placed in an organisation and people's willingness to share their data with that organisation. On the impact of governance, we found that profiles where strict rules are in place that limit organisations' use of data, require transparency and data security, are chosen 56% of the time compared to profiles when no governance was in place, which were chosen just 44% of the time. And ultimately, this demonstrates how important governance mechanisms are for confidence in data sharing. So I'm going to hand back to Hannah just to talk about some of CDI's wider work in this area. 
Thanks, Holly. Um, so just to wrap up, a final point before we have time for some questions is, I guess, the so what of the survey and some of the practical ways that CDI is actually trying to enable um, responsible and trustworthy use of data. So I'm short on time and won't go into detail, but at a high level, I think the survey shows the importance, firstly, of actually engaging with the public to understand their concerns, um, but secondly, working to actually address these concerns. So examples include some of CDI's work on developing an algorithmic transparency standard, uh, collaboration with the United States government on a prize challenge for privacy-enhancing technologies or PETs, um, and a roadmap to an effective AI assurance ecosystem, and more details can be found on CDI's website. I think that was perfect timing, Gavin. <laughs> uh, so back to you for any questions. <laughs> Hannah and Holly, thank you very much indeed. So just a reminder to everybody, I will come to the room shortly. Do put your hand up. Um, but we've also got questions already coming on on Slido, which is where those of you watching us online can submit your questions. So I will start with um, another question from Anonymous. Um, what will CDI do with the results from the tracker? Yeah, uh, so I mean, engaging with the public is kind of at the heart of what CDI is actually um, doing and the type of the research that informs our work. Um, so this tracker, engaging with the public in general is useful, um, but specifically for this tracker survey, um, I guess lots of things. So one will be, it'll be useful to understand emerging issues um, and where there are public concerns actually coming through um, about the use of data by both the public and private sector. Um, I think also understanding the differences between the sectors um, and differences, as we said, across the population will be really important and monitoring how this actually changes over time. Um, but I think an important point to say is that having this tracker survey is within the wider context of lots of other public attitudes research that we're doing as well as um, kind of project research that we're doing so this survey will be one piece of research um, used as part of an overall package to help um, inform and complement more in-depth research that we're doing um, so for example i think it shows the importance of doing qualitative research as well as quantitative research so not just taking the tracker survey findings at face value but actually delving a bit more into the detail by talking to the public with qualitative research. Excellent, thanks. Do we have any questions in the room next? Yes. Hi, uh, Matt Carroll from Cabinet Office. I was interested in the piece around actor, and I thought it was, it's, really, it's not unsurprising to me that the NHS comes out as, as sort of the most trusted actor and social media comes out as the least trusted. But I guess there's a piece around sort of the actor you first engage with and then perhaps connecting to the final talk about data sharing and the fact that actually are you trusting the act, that first actor that you give your data to but we don't necessarily know and I don't know whether the track is doing this about sort of in the case of the NHS sharing their data with researchers uh, and then whether those are academic researchers or private medical companies etc versus sort of you go to your bank and you probably trust your bank but they've also got trackers on there from social media companies and things so I guess there's a there's a piece there about actor and how that actually transfers into the real lived experience of you as a person transferring your data I'm gonna hand over to Holly for this question thanks Hannah so I think that's a really good question and I mean, Hannah started with the caveats of this survey and that it is the first one of these tracker surveys and we can ask everything. Um, so we do have those individual data points on an actor and we see that really high support in the NHS, much lower support in social media companies and a kind of variety of support in between then. 
but there's this question of what happens when it's multiple actors there. Um, and I think that is something that we will potentially want to address through other research in the future. Um, and we're really interested in the idea of data sharing more broadly, but it's potentially something that would be more um, better research through something like focus groups, which we do quite often at the CGI, and we like to sort of triangulate, triangulate our findings between our quantitative findings and our qualitative findings, because then we can ask about something like this, which is much more complex, where there might be several stages of a data journey in which an individual is sharing their data, firstly with a really high trusted actor like the NHS, but there's the potential that their data might be then shared on. But I think one of the key things to talk about here is actually transparency. Um, and the level of transparency that was in that, within that system. So when someone is sharing their data with someone like the NHS, are they aware that their data is then going to be shared on and have they consented to that? Um, and one of the things CDI advises um, around transparency is being very clear exactly about how your data is going to be used and that kind of mechanisms within that. Um, so I think that really will affect public attitudes and it's a much more complex question and maybe if you're sharing your data with multiple actors your attitudes towards that would be quite different than just one actor brilliant thank you i'm, I'm going to go to an online question now this is sam from med confidential evening to you sam um, he asks did you look for public attitudes on decisions around the 2020 a level data driven algorithms fiasco um, he notes that that was overseen by the then chair of cdei um, also have you done any work on the perceptions of cdei itself yeah thanks sam i'm happy to um, take that i guess two questions so the focus of this survey was attitudes towards use of data and AI by both the public and private sector and um, wasn't focused on attitudes to CDEI. And actually the poll was sent out by our independent polling research partner, partner Savanta. So CDI's name wasn't kind of referenced anywhere on the poll. It wasn't, um, it wasn't meant to be like that. It was an independent poll from kind of an independent polling agency who you know, subscribes to British Polling Council, Council and things like that. It's fully independent. So not really the focus of this survey. Um, on your other point around whether we looked at attitudes towards the AI, uh, the A-level kind of data fiasco. So one thing is that within the conjoint, we varied um, the different actors involved and the use cases and the type of governance in place. Um, so there was kind of ones that might were similar to that of the government using data. We weren't being specific about that um, result. And another thing is that on the survey, we actually had a free text section where we asked people kind of what's a recent story you heard about data and was it positive or negative? So that was a way to actually hear from the public in their own words um, what was kind of front of mind with data stories. So within that, we looked and there were a couple of mentions of kind of the A-level algorithm. It's obviously a very big story, but actually what we saw as the primary news story coming up was what's stuck in people's memories is um, stories about data breaches, data hacks, data security and that kind of thing. And that was a mixture of public sector and private sector. Um, so that was kind of the more negative end of what we were seeing when people were remem remembering stories about data. Um, in terms of positive stories that people were remembering about data, we found people actually talking about COVID and the use of data in the COVID response, but also how people have got more comfortable engaging with things like the COVID statistics and actually data being kind of a bigger part of people's day-to-day -day lives. So we saw a bit of a split, and I think that's actually a really interesting question that we can repeat over time and see what are the stories that are actually staying in people's mind when they're thinking about data. 
Excellent, thanks. Um, we've got another anonymous question. What do you think explains the differences between support and trust in those use cases where people do see public benefit? I think um, I'll hand over to Holly to talk, talk more. I think maybe we touched on this a bit in breaking it down in terms of actor involved, the governance, the kind of who, what, why, where. Um, so I think that's probably one of the big explainers of the difference between support and trust in those different use cases. I don't know if Holly has anything to add. Yeah, I think one of the clear um, findings from this, from that coin joint, is that we can really specify what is impacting people's opinions and we can really see the impact of those individual items. Um, I can speak to this a bit more broadly from the more qualitative research we've done in focus groups recently, which is when we're talking about um, data uses that have big societal benefits, one of the clear things that stands out for people is that they're seeing that their data data directly benefits individuals. So they're seeing that direct line between their individual data and the benefits that it brings. And then also the kind of broad societal benefits that it brings so that they're seeing genuine value. It's not a, a small convenience benefit. It's something that they can see sort of a broader picture from. So things that really rung true for people about this was sort of benefits to healthcare, things like cancer treatment um, or large societal benefits. Great, thanks. Are there any final quick questions in the room? Yes, we'll take one down here. Uh, Martina Clark, Methods Analytics. Um, I was particularly struck by your question around uh, the impact of governance structures. Didn't seem to have as strong an impact on levels of trust as, for example, actors. There was a difference, but it wasn't a hugely significant one. As somebody who spends a lot of time thinking about governance structures, uh, it's quite interesting if you had some views or any insight as to why that was why people didn't seem to be that affected? Is it level of understanding what those mean or something else? Yeah, really good question. And we also spend a lot of time thinking about governance. Um, I think one thing is that the, the kind of way that we were asking this question in the conjoint is that we wanted to keep this fairly simple because we were already varying so many different things of kind of the actor, the purpose, the type of data being used and the governance. So the way we actually asked about governance was Kind of there's very strong rules and regulations in place or there's less strong rules and regulations in place so it probably didn't have that as much of an impact on the individual's choice because it was kind of added on at the end um, i think what we would say is that it shows the importance of doing multiple surveys and also doing different um, methods for engaging with the public because we have done lots of focus groups um, focused on particular elements of governance and in particular transparency and in focus groups, we've kind of seen the impact that you can actually have from being not just transparent, but meaningfully transparent with the public about how their data is being used and how that can actually lead to kind of increased trust and comfort in how their data is being used. So I wouldn't say um, governance isn't important at all. And actually, even within the conjoint, ACTA had a massive impact, but governance also did have an impact. I think it's just an example of where you need to complement the survey with other types of research. Unfortunately, we have to end it there. And believe me, judging by the number of questions on Slido, we could keep going all evening on this. Um, but Hannah and Holly, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. And uh, I know we're all looking forward to seeing the first edition of the tracker. And if you're interested in the algorithmic transparency work um, that was mentioned as well, uh, we heard about that at Databytes 25. So you can find out more about that on our website. Um, we now move to our third presentation this evening, another virtual one, uh, and that's Charles from Bayes. Uh, good evening, everyone, and um, thank you, thank you to the IFG team for hosting this. Um, so my name is Charles Price. I'm a 
deputy director in Bayes, uh, and I focus on knowledge assets. Um, so knowledge assets, um, uh, this team, my team is all about identifying, protecting and getting the most out of public sector intangibles. I'm going to tell you a bit about what those are and, and how this project uh, arose. So, um, so we started this work actually in the Treasury um, uh, and it started with a document that we produced in the Treasury. I was back in the, I was working in the Treasury at that point uh, called the Whole of Government Accounts. And it sounds like quite a dry document. Um, it's got a lot of financial information in it, but it's also um, a very rich source of, of government data. Um, it comprises um, uh, financial information from 9,000 organisations across the public sector and it's considered to be one of the most advanced um, uh, documents of its kind in the world. Um, um, so it's very detailed, very thorough and it, and it gives a very good picture of what the government does with its money, where it gets it from and so forth. Um, now within that uh, there is a category of investment called uh, intangible assets and these are things like intellectual property, data, R&D investments and so forth. And the interesting thing about uh, our financial statements, the whole of government account, is if, if you look at those then actually intangible assets or knowledge assets play a very very small role in the overall scheme of things. Um, so it's about two percent of, of total assets. But, um, but we thought a bit more broadly than the, the, the audited information, the, the pure financial information in those accounts. And we, we looked at some other sources of data. And, and when you do that, uh, many of you will be familiar with this, but when you uh, do that, then intangible assets are seen to play a much bigger role in the economy and in economic value uh, than suggested by the, the balance sheet. Um, the ONS, the Office for National Statistics, estimates about 50% investment into today's economy is into intangible assets um, and there's also there are also other interesting data points so if you look at the world's most successful companies uh, like Microsoft and Google and so forth and the ones that are growing the quickest they attribute a much much higher percentage of their overall value to, to intangibles um, there's a there's a statistic that about 95 percent of the world's 95 percent of the of the world's most valuable companies, top five companies is attributed to intangibles. And so we thought as we as we went through these data sets that there ought to be something more to, to go for within the public sector. And we came up with some new policies to do that. Uh, just before I do that, talk about those new policies, I'll, I'll uh, give some examples of, of knowledge assets in, in the public sector. And um, so on the on the left hand side of that spectrum, there are things that are more typically um, there are more typically recognized and, and valued and they'll, they'll figure in our accounting statements, things like software licenses, development costs, uh, sometimes patents also. Um, but on the right hand side of the scale, um, you get into things like data and analytics, methodologies and standards, uh, know-how, skills and innovation. And the government um, actually has a surprisingly good track record at incubating these things uh, and creating th creating organisations, teams, uh, intellectual property that can have real impact uh, on society. Uh, the Behavioural Insights team, for example, that's a good example. Uh, there was a team of 15 people in the Cabinet Office and it was spun out into an independent organisation and it grew to, I think, about 200 people um, with offices in many countries. Um, Kew Gardens, um, uh, you can buy you can buy Kew Gardens gin and various Kew Gardens branded products. Um, so that's, a, that's, a, that's a, good, a good example of trademark, a government sponsored trademark and brand um, uh, being used more broadly in the economy. 
There are also lots of interesting types of intellectual property that government research laboratories produce. Um, so, for example, within the MOD, there's a there's a research laboratory that, pro that produced a, a technique that can detect for sepsis early, and and if that technique can be proven to be successful uh, and it can be applied in health settings, then it could save huge numbers of lives. Uh, another research laboratory is the Natural Physical Laboratory, which is researched by Bay, uh, uh, sponsored by Bayes. Um, they've developed a way of detecting for diabetic complications on people's feet. And again, if that intellectual property can be developed into um, a working product, it could save huge numbers of lives and uh, lifestyles um, and generate a lot of benefits in, in, in CNHS. So the, the question then came, well, there's there are these kind of there's this potential out there. What more could we do to encourage those types of innovation, uh, such as being developed in National Physical Laboratory, um, these research lab laboratories in the, in the MOD and, and bring those into the economy, into products that can help people's lives. And um, that um, that policy was set out in the, the Macintosh report. Um, please Google it uh, for a detailed read. And and alongside that, we've published something called the Rose Book, and that sets out how uh, those doing innovation work in the public sector can think about some ways to uh, to structure that innovation uh, and some tools for them to, um, to 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 think about. What was in the Macintosh report? Uh, well, it's a it was a three pillar strategy, uh, and the first pillar was around good practice. So this was the Rose Book, um, and it um, it generates some some ideas, as I said, on on what to do with innovation when you have it in the public sector. Um, the second pillar was around incentives, um, and we are trying to make it easier within that pillar to um, to to do this innovation work. Sometimes there can be perverse incentives, uh, and uh, we have an ongoing work stream to to find those uh, find those barriers and and tackle them. Um, and then the third pillar of our work was around support um, and there are two main bits to that so we are establishing a new unit uh, called the government office for tech transfer this is going to be ho hosted within bays um, and it is going to uh, is going to target those kind of innovations that are uh, generated in government research labs and create more pathways for them to get into the economy in in developing that policy we've um, we've learned a lot from the university system, so um, uh, UK universities and in, in the US uh, also have generated very strong track records in recent years of um, taking IP from lab benches and creating new companies and creating working products from that. Um, and we're looking to learn a bit from that. Uh, the other thing that we are doing is setting up a new fund. Um, uh, a, a new fund to back some of these innovation ideas in the public sector. Um, for any of those areas, or, uh, there's more there's more detail in the Macintosh report. So please do Google that uh, if you're if you're interested in finding out more. Um, and please ask me please ask me questions now. Also, uh, Gavin, I think I'm pretty much bang on your eight minutes, and I'm going to hand back to you. Fantastic, Charles. Thank you very much indeed. Again, if you're watching us online, please do submit your questions via Slido. We've got some coming in already, um, but I went online first last time, so I'm going to come to the room first this time. Uh, does anyone in the room have any questions for Charles? And again, we'll start the timer going when the first question is asked. 
uh, Mary Susan Barry Bays. Um, how is ARIA, uh, the Advanced Research and Innovation Invention Agency, and the GOT, which is Government Office of Technology Transfer, how are they going to, to work together? I mean, I, I'm on the assumption they are going to work together. And what, what sort of expectations are there to come out of ARIA? I mean, and presumably any, anything that does come out of them is obviously going to be given some sort of value in WGA. Um, so um, uh, a couple of questions there. How do we value this kind of how products of these kind of research institutes in WGA and how will the work link with how will go government office of tech transfer link with ARIA? So, um, so you're right, uh, uh, Bayes um, is setting up two organizations at the moment. One is ARIA and the other is government office of tech transfer. Um, they're, they're both um, they're both in the process of setting up appointing chief executives uh, and making good, good progress in that. Um, and I think as as those two chief executives um, settle in, I don't neither of them started yet. As they settle in, um, they will. Uh, I'm sure they will have good conversations about how to how to link up their their respective areas. In in the main, I would say the area is focused on big blue sky um, innovation. Um, creating new categories of um, of research and government also tech transfer is really going to be about working with ideas that already exist have already got some kind of proof um, and fi finding clever ways to to, to get those into um, into into products that that can help people in the market so there are slightly different uh, phases of the innovation chain on your point about how does this kind of work get reflected in the whole government accounts. I mean, I'd say in a way, the objective is not to start showing increases in asset values in the in the WGA. The objective is to create new uh, new inventions um, that can that have positive impacts on people's lives. Um, so and on the whole, I wouldn't I wouldn't expect to see um, see changes in, in, in the WGA as a result of this work. Thank you, Charles. Um, I'm going to go to a specific question which broadens out to something broader uh, from Tom King online. Evening to you, Tom. Um, does the National Cyber Security Centre get included in intangible accounting? And I suppose the broader question I'd ask is how do you think about the intangibles that come from all of the information and data gathered by intelligence agencies? Yeah, so, um, so that's a good one. So I would think that the uh, the, the national cybersecurity, so it would be its financial statements would be consolidated into the WGA. Um, I wouldn't think it shows lots of intangible assets within that because um, it, you know, there, there, there may be some development costs that it, it capitalizes. I don't know. Um, um, and then on to your point about on to your point about how 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 kind of security organisations. Can feed into this. So, um, so GCHQ is is a good example. They they have lots of innovations, uh, and, so, and occasionally they do look to to find broader ways to get those into the economy because they can think they think it can help with um, uh, broader economic security. Um, so, so sometimes they do look for pathways to to encourage in, innovation um, crossing across from GCHQ into into the private sector. Um, but also there are pretty strong restrictions about what they would want to do. Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll leave, it, uh, leave it at that. 
Great. I'll come to the room for another one uh, shortly, but first, uh, another question from Anonymous online. Uh, the government has announced R&D tax credits linked to data and analytics, but they appear to be limited to the purchase of proprietary data sets generated by third parties. Are there plans to expand them to boost R&D geared to data-driven IP development? So the, um, the focus of, of the knowledge assets work is innovations, IP, developed within the public sector. So questions about R&D credits, which apply to private sector organizations, don't, it's not, it's not part of, it's not part of our policy area. I couldn't, I couldn't answer that one. No problem at all. Uh, do we have any more questions in the room? Yes. Hi, uh, Matthew Gill. Uh, just a quick question about the whole of government accounts there. Relatively new, as you said, and um, uh, it's um, it's more difficult to identify and value intangibles relative to tangibles. So I wondered whether you had a view as to whether and to what extent the problem is really that we've just not captured intangibles in government in the whole of government accounts. So yes, I definitely agree that it is it is harder to uh, to value intangibles, uh, and I think that's one of the reasons why they don't figure strongly. In, in the whole of government accounts. And so, um, and that, that really informed our work that what we wanted was more ways of seeking out those interesting ex cases of intellectual property across across the public sector and finding finding pathways, creating pathways for that, that for the potential of that IP to be fully realized. Um, so so yes, it's hard to it's hard to identify like a, a good Aware of valuing intangibles, but that's not to say that we shouldn't um, be on the search for them and uh, be doing all we can to support them. It's all, I mean, I, should, I would add, it's also a challenge in the private sector. So the WGA is drawn up under international accounting um, standards. Um, so it's also, it's also a challenge in, in the private sector, how you, how you account for your intangible assets. Excellent, thanks. You mentioned the, the Rose Book, and there are a number of sort of coloured books across government that are there for civil servants to refer to in their sort of everyday work. What effect do you think your knowledge assets work is likely to have on the work of individual civil servants? What does it sort of look like within departments on a day-to-day -day basis? So what we, what we hope is that um, those leading on innovation programmes who develop some clever idea uh, be that IP or some interesting data set or an algorithm, um, have a way of putting that into an organizational structure. Um, so a, a structure within their organization um, and that they can then be supported by uh, the government also tech transfer if, 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 if helpful and also some of these grant funds that we're setting up. One of the um, one of the challenges that innovators often have in the public sector is that if if their idea has application outside um, their department's remit. So if, for example, the MOD has an interesting uh, bit of IP that can have impact in, in the Department of Health, it's very difficult for that to get funded within the MOD. But likewise, uh, the Department of Health will say, well, that's, that, that, that sits in the world of, um, sits in the world of the MOD, so they're not going to fund it. And what we're, what we're trying to do with some of our funding programs is to support those ideas that can fall between gaps. Great, and I think we've got time for one more question. So Anonymous Online asks, are there plans to value NHS data or, or IP derived from it and add that to the whole of government accounts? 
so um so there's a lot there's like a, a, a lot of conversation about um nhs data and that there the are various reports in the private sector i think Alison young has, has, has done one on 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 the potential of of uh, potential value of NHS data. I don't. I don't think from 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 an accounting point of view, um, you you'd be able to come up with a robust valuation. Um, but um, but again, that's not to say that people shouldn't have a good sense of how like the potential value of that and be doing uh, doing what they can to um, to to maximise the potential of it. And I know there are lots of initiatives within the Department of Health to um, to do that in a way that. Uh, that is safe for patients and um, meets meets very rigorous ethical standards. Excellent. Well, Charles, um, thank you very much indeed. I think we'll all look forward to see how that work develops. And uh, thank you very much for talking to us tonight. Thank you very much. And now, last but certainly not least, uh, we're back in the building, uh, and we're over to Kathleen. I'm a bit analogue, so you might have to bear with me while I sort of deal with all of that. Um, hi, everybody. My name's Kathleen Caper, and I work in the Cabinet Office. And a big thank you to Gavin and to IFG for having us here. I was here at the last one that you did live in February 2020, so it's nice to be in the room for your first live one back. Um, this evening, I'm going to whiz you through one of the many ways that government is transforming its use of data, as well as introducing some of the newish uh, ways of organising this work in order to support delivery. Okay, boom. So, ladies and gentlemen, when we talk about data in government, we tend to veer between two poles. At one end is the wicked problems and the huge obstacles to getting near data. And at the other end, the big, exciting data programmes that are telling us really interesting, really valuable things. When we tune into Data Bytes, we anticipate a selection of projects making use of government data to deliver real-world change, often right at the, at the front line um, of service delivery. This little presentation, however, is probably closer to the problems and obstacles poll. Though the problems are big, they are not insurmountable, and the cross-government appetite to solve our challenges has never been greater. That's a really, really big clock, Gavin. <laughs> feeling the pressure, right. making it happen. Uh, I hope you will enjoy the very um, sophisticated diagrams that I will provide you with throughout this presentation. One of the ways that government is working to address all these foundational, less glamorous data issues that, getting, that get in the way of getting things done with data in government is through standing up a data standards authority at the centre of government. And this reflects the scale of the commitment and of the task. And who is the Central Digital and Data Office, I hear you ask. I know some of you are familiar, but perhaps not everybody is. So we are the locus of the DVAT function for government. We think laterally across government on what needs to be in place in DVAT world to enable delivery of government's priorities and programs, the day-to-day -day work of government now and in the future. The CDDO was established 11 months ago, um, a result of the MOG change which brought government data policy uh, back into Cabinet Office and the Data Standards Authority is a program of CDDO. Um, and as this very detailed diagram indicates, um, CDDO does some other things other than the DSA and Cabinet Office. Also, they do some stuff other than CDDO. Boom. 
So how do we take it from these big picture strategies and into action? So we know the National Data Strategy recognises that the biggest barriers to getting more out of data are rooted in the lack of cross-government consistency and alignment of practice around how data is represented, recorded, described, stored, shared, accessed, all of these things. We do them a little bit differently. And this is the focus of the Data Standards Authority. We want to identify, endorse, and deliver the right standards for government, and those things should drive data interoperability and improve data sharing. It's really that simple for us. It tends to get a bit more complicated as we go through it. So we're all about improving that leadership around standards, addressing those common points of friction, and providing the, the tools, levers, guidance, and support to deliver that interoperability. In the DSA, as I say, our driving ambition is that data in government can be found, it can be accessed, it can be shared and combined easily. Because uh, until we do that, we can't do fun stuff with data in government. So the DSA currently organises um, our work in this way. So data standards does what it says on the tin. Um, it's that identifying standards that government needs, providing ways to endorse them, to disseminate them, working with standards bodies within government and outside of government, and finding ways to enforce such standards where that is appropriate. Data exchange interfaces, this is predominantly around API standards. So getting the plumbing right, um, setting standards so that we can improve that data integration across government and data sharing governance, for which more will be revealed. So, I think for many of you, this will be, the points on this slide will be really familiar these challenges uh, and the way each one of them contributes differently to the difficulties in getting the best value from government's data. Addressing these foundations across government is, is a huge task. It's really, it is massive um, and we can't deny that. It will take time, it will take resource and it needs to be continually managed. It's not going to be something we can solve once and walk away from. We're going to need to continue to update what we're doing. So the DSA and CDDO more widely, have the majority of these challenges in our sites. However, I don't mean to be dramatic. I hope that's readable and colours have come through there. So all the same challenges that apply to the technical aspects of data sharing are seen on the non-technical side of data sharing. So we're broadly grouping all the ones that are highlighted in turquoise, or it might look like blue-gray to you, depending on what the, the color of the screen you've got there is. Um, we group these broadly as data sharing governance issues. We cast our net fairly widely across it um, so that we're capturing most of the non-technical enablers for data sharing. Uh, and we're taking a standards-based approach here too, by which I mean working towards consistency, alignment, and consensus very aware of the time. So our problem statement, because of the nature of departmental government and the attendant differing levels of data maturity, we find ourselves here. Uh, as a result, we do things just differently enough across process, across documentation, interpretation and accountability that it's really hard to make data sharing work when we need to bring these different and slightly different processes together. Our assumptions and starting points. The job is consistency and alignment, um, and consistency and alignment will make 
cross-government data sharing faster and easier. We are compliant with regulations. We think it's a valuable and important part of what we do. It's getting some greater consistency and uh, consensus around how we work through those compliance issues that matters. Um, I am agnostic about what the laws are. If the law changes, we'll work with that. Um, we're not in that policy space at all. And we think about users in two ways. Uh, we think about the experts for data sharing, people who are doing this stuff day in and day out. Um, we think about them as having the consistency gap. And for those who do it occasionally, do some data sharing occasionally, there's a capability gap. And we need to be a lot more creative about how we work with the capability gap. <gasps> One minute, 15 seconds. I have some criteria, things that really matter to me that bring it into the scope of data sharing uh, governance within the Data Standards Authority. So I'll focus here on the main one that's really important to me is that it needs to be a common friction. It needs to be a problem that we share when we come together in government to share data with each other. Is it something that is repeated over and over again and we've just not been able to solve it? And that is something then that brings it into scope for CDDO, for the DSA, because it's if you've not been able to solve it yourselves, then it's probably something that we can do more centrally and hope, hopefully work through. Uh, and then it needs to come through, all of that stuff needs to be non-technical. Um, will the levers that I have available, the tools I've got available around consistency alignment, etc., be valuable here? I've got some priorities. I'm doing some stuff. I may well publish a high-level framework um, in the not-too-distant future um, that's product work across government to identify good practice, priority areas of friction, which make data sharing inefficient. It's our first... Uh, product in relation to the first priority, currently going through internal clearance, but we're doing some informal testing. And the framework sets out our aims, addresses initial priorities in support of cross-government convergence um, and coordination of data sharing governance. Doesn't matter what we publish, if we haven't got your buy-in before we get there, it's not going to work. I am one of many. Look at that. Thank you very much My indeed, pleasure. Kathleen. Um, I'll come to questions in the room shortly, but first of all, um, we've already got questions coming in via Slido. Please do keep them coming. Um, we'll start with um, a big one from, from Tom King. Have you had any success in explaining the scale and importance of the challenge to ministers and other parliamentarians? Classic Data Bytes question. It is a classic Data Bytes question, and, and, you know, I'm glad you asked it. I think there's always a balance for us in trying to demonstrate progress um, and tangible progress at that. And so, and you know, it's just, it's just a really human thing to latch on to stuff where you can go, well, we've increased this by X and kind of things. So we make sure that we've always got a bit of that um, up our sleeve. But we also want to be able to talk about if we're going to get to these really ambitious data projects that you want to do, here's all the things that need to happen first and making sure that that's part of the narrative that we're continually feeding up. But people also need to be able to see that things are happening here and now. Excellent. We, we haven't cracked it, is probably the simple answer. <laughs> Anyone in the room got a question? We've got... Uh, we'll go for the back row first, and then we'll come to you next. It's a very simple question. If you're trying to say ministers, what do you do to sort of crystallise for them the prize that data sharing could be unlocking that you're leaving on the table by not doing it? I don't think that's the challenge. Um, I think that 
they really understand that there's this enormous, valuable asset um, in government and we could make more of it if we could combine it. Um, and then explaining the reasons why it doesn't combine easily is where it gets more challenging because it is quite technical. Um, it can be about the data quality, it can be about formats, it can so many different reasons why the data from Department A can't be combined with the, the data from Department B. And I think the, the challenge for ministers is understanding the scale of that problem um, because they want to get to the, the stuff that really delivers change and that's understandable. So we've got to find some of that low-hanging fruit too to make sure that we are delivering and that also helps to solve problems as we go along. Uh, probably quite a linked question. I noticed you said um, capability gap and had the line that said that might not need direct attention. Yeah. Does it not? Yes and no. So I think for me, it's, I think there's some more creative ways of doing it. I don't think everybody in government needs to be a data sharing expert or a data protection expert or any of those things. Um, we're seeing some interesting stuff coming through departments at the moment in trying to deal with this rather than trying to push more stuff into people's brains um, that they can you know, put on their LinkedIn. What they're looking at is, can we have a floating team, for example, that advises those who are doing data sharing occasionally and helps guide them through the process? So you've got that expertise there and you're deploying it where it's needed rather than thinking you've got to skill everybody up all the time. So it's that kind of creativity, I think, that will help us close the capability gap Otherwise, on the sort of expert side where people are working with data sharing day in and day out, data acquisition teams um, in their CDO office, etc., cetera, uh, they know exactly what they're doing and the gap for them is aligning their systems and processes. I'm going to take a question from online and then we'll come to uh, another one in the audience. Uh, this is from Sam from MedConfidential. Um, he says, one foundation should be an accurate list or register of all data sharing agreements in government. Are there effects on governance and trust from a register that has as many mistakes as Cabinet Office admit are in the dating, share, data sharing register mandated by the Digital Economy Act? Sure. Yeah, I know we've had some challenges with the, the register for the uh, Digital Economy Act. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm not over the detail of, of that register, but I, you know, I do understand that there are, have been some challenges there. Um, I think you're really, I think that's a really good point. Um, is that this is not something that we have completely solved. Um, during the CDEI presentation, I was really interested in the stuff that they were, they, the scoring that they were getting, the sort of attitudes coming through around governance, and I want to dig into that um, with them more so that we can start to pull out what, what do the public expect to see, what do they want to see, and what can we deliver around the, the data sharing um, agreements that do exist in government. And we've also got some massive technical ones too about actually locating them all. Um, and that's sort of very high on my agenda as well. Can, you know, is there such a way of being able to understand all, you know, even within government, all of the data sharing arrangements that exist? It's, you know, it's, it's a big space, almost as big as, you know, everything else that we've got on our plate. But yeah, I'd love to talk to you more about it at some point, Sam. Excellent. Um, and this is also a shameless plug for the IFG. We've got a project coming up on data sharing during the pandemic, so I'm sure we'll want to talk to you Ooh, as well. Oh, please do, yes. Um, Simon. I thought you might. <laughs> uh, a lot of the interest in this, of course, is collecting data to make government run more effectively and run services better. But if I can take you to the end of the other end of the spectrum with statistics uh, for public consumption, mm -hmm. 
I think there was a great hope with the Digital Economy Act, which was whatever, five years ago, that that would lead to a lot more data sharing to produce statistics. And I, I think it's been really mixed. I don't think it's been nearly as successful as people hoped. Mm. And I, I don't know whether that product, statistics for public consumption, is something that is particularly a, a passion or a priority for your team. So we work very closely with the ONS, um, so they are a key partner for the Data Standards Authority, so we do work quite closely with them. There is, as, as you'd probably be aware, slightly different legislation which covers um, uh, statistics and research, but sort of fits broadly across um, stuff, in the stuff in the DEA as well. Um, I'm not hugely over that space, I would say, but we are in constant conversation with the with ONS, um, particularly their data acquisition team there, in what do you what would make life easier for you in terms of speeding up that process of accessing data that government has in order for you to be able to do the analysis, produce the information, produce the statistics. So I'm in that sort of wedge there of how do we make that easier at this stage, and it's really early days. Um, I understand your concerns about, you know, and I think when any new act comes through, there's quite often a lot of hullabaloo about just how much it's going to achieve, and the day-to-day -day grind can sometimes be a bit different. Uh, but work on data sharing legislation and the DEA hasn't slowed down. Um, so you might have, but probably didn't catch in my slide before this one about that sort of ecosystem. Um, is we have a, the data sharing legislation team based in uh, CDDO. They work with the policy leads across government um, who are in charge of different uh, parts of that act and constantly looking at ways to encourage people to use it, encourage departments and organisations to use it, um, look for opportunities for them, and also looking at where is the act not quite right, where might we need to amend it, um, whether through uh, secondary or primary legislation. So there's, you know, there's things in train, and we certainly understand that it can't be considered a static uh, document as well. We need to keep it live, and we need to be encouraging people to use it. And we've got time for one final question from online. Anonymous, again, you've had a very busy evening. Do departments want to share their data? And if not, how can they be encouraged? Absolutely, and I think it is really challenging. There is a massive difference in risk appetites between organisations. So for me, um, so as I said, we're working at the moment on publishing a data sharing governance framework and uh, assuming we get clearance for that, uh, hopefully sometime you know, in, the, in the next few months. So for me, there's some stuff in that that sort of goes from the profound to the profane. At the profound end of the spectrum, there is senior leaders who don't have the word data in their job titles need to get behind data sharing even if it's as simple as thinking, do I have enough information to good, make good decisions? Could that information be held elsewhere in government? And conversely, am I sitting on information that other senior leaders could use? So there's that encouragement. So we are asking for greater accountability at that non-D level, D level, non-data person level. We want to see it written up in strategic organisation strategies and to have strategy within organisations about improving their data sharing. So trying to get into that space where we can start influencing then the, the risk appetite um, to help with risk modelling, particularly around non-personal data and getting more of that published um, and starting to align some of that risk modelling more clearly across government. And that'll only work if it helps solve some of those problems and take some of the pain out of it for, uh, for departments. Brilliant. Well, Kathleen, thank you very much indeed.
So all that stands between me and some wine for those of you in the room and logging off, I guess, for those of you online, um, are a few parish notices. Um, just to say, we have got some uh, more IFG events coming up over the next few weeks. Uh, next Monday, I'll be in conversation with Sir David Norgrove, who's the outgoing chair, not a comment on his personality necessarily, of the UK Statistics Authority, who will be reflecting on his five years in post. But we've also got events coming up on a new statutory role for the civil service. We've got uh, conversations with Mayors Steve Rotherham and Tracy Brabin. Um, we're also looking at the good chaps theory of the Constitution and how the UK can lead on green finance. The next Data Bytes uh, will be at 6pm on Wednesday the 6th of April. And all that remains for me to say is thank you all for joining us, whether you're online or here in the building, as we pilot this new hybrid future. Um, and join me in a final virtual and actual round of applause for our fantastic speakers this evening. Thank you very much indeed.